If you have your Bibles, if you would open them to Genesis chapter 16. Genesis 16. We've been studying the life of Abram, who will later, Lord willing, next Sunday we'll see his name is changed to Abraham. The story of Abram is one of grace and then trial, followed by grace. It all begins with grace and it ends with grace. Today in chapter 16, we come to another trial. And this trial is with regard to his faith and trust in God. To review briefly, Abram's story begins with a call to leave the known, that which he knows, his country, his people, his father's household, He's to cut those ties and to move to the unknown, to a place the Lord would show him. His trial came again when there was a severe famine in the land and he went to Egypt. There was the issue of Sarah's beauty and he allowed Pharaoh to take her into his household. And then there was a trial with Lot and he allowed Lot to choose the seemingly better choice And Abram stayed with the, again, for lack of a better way to put, the lesser of the two places. There was a trial of courage when Lot and his family are taken captive uh, by the four kings to the north. And Abram, the grace of God with the 318 men from his house goes and he rescues Lot. And then there was the greater trial, perhaps, and that is when the king of Sodom offered him, you can take everything, give me the people, you can keep everything else. And unlike what happened with Pharaoh in Egypt, Abram says no. I don't want anyone to say, I am responsible for Abram's wealth. What we see in these incidents are the trials of the fervor of his faith. Did he love God more than home and family? Or would he trust God? The sufficiency of his faith. And here he stumbled. He's in the promised land and yet there's a famine. And so he goes to Egypt and not trusting God allows Pharaoh to take Sarai. Then there's a humility in his faith. When he gives in to his nephew. When I think every culture in the world would say that the uncle, the older one, should have first choice. But he allows Lot to take what he wants. There is a boldness in his faith when he goes after Lot and rescues him. And there is a dignity in his faith, if you wish, as he gives ten, one-tenth to uh, Melchizedek and refuses anything from Bera, the king of Sodom. There's yet another trial to come, actually several more, but today the trial is with regard to the patience of his faith. We'll get to that in a minute. Two things before we begin. First of all, I'm not sure what I was thinking last Sunday, but I said last Sunday that the second most repeated commandment in the Bible is do not be afraid. It is, in fact, the most repeated commandment in the Bible, and I've said that many times before, and so I don't know if there's a senior moment or something. Um, But why is this the most repeated commandment in Scripture? Because of sin. 
we find that fear is the natural, it's the default setting for us as human beings. We see it when Adam hid himself from God. I heard you in the garden and I was afraid. And ever since then, we've been afraid. And that's why as we begin our worship, Dave sings to us and we respond, I will not fear. Because that is the natural setting for us as human beings. In the novel Dune by Frank Herbert and in the subsequent uh, novels that come after it, there is the mantra of the Bene Gesserit, the order. It's called the Litany Against Fear. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear is gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. In my opinion, it's probably the most brilliant creation by Herbert. I mean, it's a wonderful novel. I think one of the most significant novels in the 20th century. Um, but he really captured something in this, the issue of fear and how that you have to have this almost mantra to say, I will not fear. I must not fear. It is the little death. So I mentioned last Sunday, safety and security are no longer issues for Abram. But they are in our day. People want to be safe. They want to have a sense of security. And as much as I admire the litany against fear, I think we would rather trust God most high, creator of heaven and earth, and obey his commandment, the most repeated commandment, do not be afraid, do not fear. For Abram, it is no longer a question of safety and security. It is, will God keep his promise? It's a question of God keeping his promise. One more thing, and then we'll get into chapter 16. I want you to have a, maybe feel this as we go. There's a real contrast between chapter 15, which we looked at last week, and chapter 16 today. In chapter 15, we read a verse that is repeated at least three times in the New Testament. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He believes God. We get to chapter 16, and what happens? Abram agreed to what Sarah said. The ESV and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. The King James has, and Abram hearkened to the voice of Sarai. And what we see is he agreed to, he listened to, he hearkened to the voice of his wife. As to what that involved, we'll see in a moment. But the contrast is so strong that he, in fact, trusted God. And then there's a shift where he chooses, in essence, to trust in the words of his wife, um, and he was wrong in this. One commentator refers to the words of Jesus in this regard, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Let's look at Genesis 16. Follow along if you would as I read the first six verses. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar, so she said to Abram, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abram agreed to what Sarai said. 
So after Abram had been living in Canaan 10 years, Sarai, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant, Hagar, and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. When she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Then Sarai said to Abram, you are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. I put my servant in your arms, and now she knows she is pregnant. Now that she knows she is pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Your servant is in your hands, Abram said. Do with her whatever you think best. Then Sarai mistreated Hagar, so she fled from her. Things to consider about in these verses. First of all, Sarai is still barren. This is something we are told before chapter 12, when God makes all these promises to Abraham. We are told very specifically that she could not have children, that she was barren. And in the light of that, God still makes all these promises. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. But nothing has changed in that regard. She still cannot have children. The second thing to note, it's been 10 years since Abram moved to Canaan. 10 years since God made all those promises. It means that Abram is 85 and she is, Sarai is 75 years old. And if Sarai was barren at 65, we would assume she is still barren at 75. We're told in the first verse that she had borne Abram no children. But it's interesting, the third thing to consider is that she recognized God as the cause of her infertility. The Lord has kept me from having children. In this, I would say she, has been, she should be commended. But having said that, she has a solution to get around what God has done to her. God has caused her infertility, but she has a plan to solve the problem. Something that would not involve God, by the way. The solution is Hagar, her maidservant, an Egyptian. We're not told directly, and I've talked to some of you about this, um, but if you remember when he went to Egypt and Pharaoh took Sarai, he gave Abram all these gifts, these donkeys and all these things, men servants and maid servants. And it is very possible that Hagar was one of those gifts that Pharaoh had given to Abram, which as I've argued, he should have never taken. But he did, and now she has Hagar as her handmaiden. It was bad enough that Abram lied about Sarai, that she was his sister, but then he took the gifts the many gifts that Pharaoh gave him. So what is the solution? Sarai's come up with a solution. Go sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. You may remember that in chapter 15, Abram had posited a solution, and that is not what Sarai had said, but by adoption. I have a servant, Eliezer of Damascus, if I make him my heir, I can adopt him, he can be my heir, and then the promises you made to me will be fulfilled through him. This is from chapter 15, verse 2. O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless, and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. 
And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So Abram has come up with a solution. I'll adopt somebody. And God tells him, no, this is not the solution. The word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. So, no, you're not going to adopt. It'll be someone who comes from your own body. And if you think about it, Sarai's solution could sort of fit into that. If, in fact, he has a son by Hagar, it's still from his body, what God promised. So, yeah, maybe, maybe that's the way to go. Nothing was ever said about the, at, up to this point about a child coming from Sarai's body, only from Abram's body. By the way, we are told in the ancient law code of Hammurabi that, in fact, a wife could present one of her slave girls to her husband, what Sarai is doing, and he could have a child by her, and then the child would be the heir. Um, the child would not belong to the slave girl. It would belong to the wife. And that's how the line would continue. So what Sarai proposed culturally, at least, was acceptable. And in fact, there are instances of whenever, for example, among Egyptians, women would sit on a stool to give birth. And as the woman who's giving birth sits there, the wife sits opposite her. And so the child comes from between the legs of the biological mother, but it seems that, in fact, it's come also between the legs of the wife, who is, in fact, barren. So it seems like a good solution. Abraham capitulates. He agrees. Abraham agreed to what Sarai said. Now, he'd been living there in verse number three for 10 years, we're not given a timeline here. Had Sarai been pestering him for 10 years? Or is it after 10 years they come up with this solution? In any case, it's when he is 85 years old that he agrees to do, with, or do what his wife has proposed. You will notice also that she gave him Hagar to be his wife. This implies that she is much more than a surrogate. She was to be his wife. Like, wait, wait a minute. I'm having a, almost a deja vu thing here. Um, didn't Abram allow Pharaoh to take Sarah into his household to be his wife? People come up with all these various solutions. By the way, this is, I think, the only time that Hagar is referred to as Abram's wife. Uh, she's not, again, in chapter 16 or in the rest of Scripture. So, what does Abram do? He gives in to his wife. He does not ask the Lord, is this the solution? He asks about Eliezer. He doesn't ask about Hagar. Solution seemed like a good one. It's in line with the promise. And it had been 10 years after all. Maybe God is waiting on them to come up with a solution. So he goes, he sleeps with Hagar, and she conceives. 
um, takes her as his wife, though she's never called that. In, in Galatians chapter 4, she's called the slave woman. And as we go through, we'll see that she's always in sort of a subordinate position as a maidservant. Well, he sleeps with her, she conceives, and so it's apparent the problem is not with Abram, the problem is with Sarah. She cannot conceive, she is infertile. So is now the promise been fulfilled? A child from Abram's body, is this the great nation that God had spoken of? Well, things don't turn out well, do they? Sarai, well, when Hagar recognized that she was pregnant, I don't know if we would blame it on hormones or whatever, pride, she began to sort of strut around and in fact to despise her mistress. One might even imagine the conversation, hey old woman, you can't have kids, I'm going to have a son, I'm going to have the child of our husband. And Sarah responds to Abram, it's your fault. You are responsible for what I'm suffering. As one commentator puts it, that what she spoke was unreasonable. Really, Abram, who came up with this idea in the first place? Wasn't it Sarai? Wasn't it you, Sarai, that came up with this? Abram, it's your fault. And then she says, amazingly, may the Lord judge between you and me. Oh, now we bring God into the picture. God hadn't been consulted, hadn't been part of the picture, but now that she's in trouble, or she imagines, you know, she's being despised by Hagar. Abram, it's your fault, and may the Lord judge between us. Ever since Eden, human beings have been shifting responsibility with Adam and Eve when they ate from the tree. Who did Adam blame? First of all, he blamed God. The woman you gave me. If you hadn't made that woman, I wouldn't be in this mess. And then he blamed Eve. She took it, she gave me, and I ate. And then Eve blamed the serpent. The serpent couldn't blame anyone. But human beings, this is what we've done throughout our history. And so Sarai is very much a human being, and she blames Abram. And then Abram turns around and does the same thing. He doesn't blame her, but he shifts the responsibility to her. Your servant is in your hands. She's your servant. It's like, wait a minute, I thought she was your wife. No, she's your servant. Do with her whatever you think best. Really? Didn't they think that in fact the promises of God could be fulfilled through Hagar? That a child from Abram's body through, we thought Sarai, but now through Hagar, that this will be the fulfillment of the promise? And then Abram's like, it's up to you. Whatever you want to do with her, I, I leave it in your hands. This is amazing. I mean, we don't know the full legal codes of that time, but could Sarai have actually killed her maidservant and the child? And what if this was the child of promise that God had spoken of? 
how could Abram so callously tell Sarai, yeah, you do whatever you think's best. You handle it. Sarai says it's your fault, and Abram's like, well, you take care of it. Neither one seems to be willing to accept responsibility. And rather than supporting his wife in her suffering, he leaves her to make the decision on her own. He does not seek to comfort her, at least we're not told that. Um, He simply says, it's up to you. You do what you think is best. And he was wrong in this. Absolutely wrong. Well, she mistreats Hagar. We're not told what she did, but this is Sarah's solution now to the problem. She mistreats Hagar to the point that Hagar fled. We're not given the specifics about the mistreatment, but it must have been extreme so that Hagar, in fact, ran away. See, I don't think a maidservant had the freedom to leave. It's not like, I quit, I'm out of here. And if, in fact, she had given, Sarah had given Hagar to Abram as his wife, the wife just can't take off. So what had happened was, must have been so abusive and so painful that Hagar ran and she left. Now look, if you would, as we come to verses 7 through 14. Hagar and the angel. The angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she answered. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. The angel added, I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, you are now with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility toward all his brothers. She gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. Again, things to consider. Hagar's headed home. She's on the road to Shur. Shur is the uh, easternmost border of Egypt. She's Egyptian. She's going back to what she knows. While she is there, Well, she's there, and it's desert. It's, it's the Sinai Peninsula. So this is, I would say, the trial part of her life. I mean, she had the trial with Sarai, but now she is in a desert, which represents trial. And it is there in the midst of trial that the angel of the Lord found her. And the angel of the Lord speaks to her. The conversation, as so many conversations with God begin, begins with a question as though he doesn't know the answer. Like with Adam, where are you? God knew precisely where he was. Um, Where have you come from and where are you going? You'll notice that she is called the servant of Sarai. 
not wife of Abram, a servant of Sarai. So the two questions, but Hagar only answers the first one. I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai. Doesn't answer the second question, where are you going? So now the angel of the Lord gives her instructions. Go back to your mistress and submit to her. On the face of it, this must have been the last thing that Hagar would have wanted to hear. It would have been certainly the last thing she'd want to do. Is the trial to continue? I mean, in a sense, she was used by both Abram and Sarai to produce a child. And then Sarai gets jealous and is upset and mistreats her so that she leaves. And now she's supposed to go back. You know, the expression out of the frying pan into the fire. It's like she's jumped into the fire. Now she's still in the fire. Would jump back into the frying pan. I mean, what is it that the angel of the Lord wants from her? What he wants to do is to show grace. The angel of the Lord speaks of the child she is carrying, and here is grace after the trial. I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. And then the Lord tells her, You are with child and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. If you look at it, verse number 10, the angel added, and then in verse 11, the angel of the Lord also said to her, the word is not simply go back to Sarah, grin and bear it. You're a servant. You have to put up with the abuse. Not at all. The angel of the Lord speaks to her, adds, and then says even more to her. And in this I hear grace. Your descendants will be too numerous to count. You're going to have a son. You're to name him Ishmael. Why? Ishmael means God hears. And the Lord has heard of her misery. Could it be because of prayer? that she has called out to God in the midst of her misery? We're not told. But in fact, God has heard. Is that not grace when God hears our prayers? A description is then given of Ishmael, but I think also of his descendants. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand against him. He will live in hostility toward all his brothers. Um, a wild donkey is someone who loves the wide open spaces, loves freedom, fiercely independent, cannot be tamed, and really quite strong. And there will be conflicts. His hand will be against all his brothers. And yet I think these words, certainly not the part about hostility, but that she would have a son and name him Ishmael that God hears must have been great comfort to her. Who is this angel of the Lord? Verse number 13, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. The angel of the Lord is the Lord himself is God himself. Theologically, we call it a theophany. 
when God appears in the Old Testament before the incarnation. God has revealed himself to an Egyptian maid servant. This is another Melchizedek. Remember Melchizedek, priest of the Lord Most High? We're not told, we're told the story of the line of the Messiah. People like Melchizedek and Hagar aren't part of that line. But God has revealed himself to them. It's quite remarkable. By the way, the angel of the Lord, we find him appearing time and time again in the Old Testament. Perhaps the best known, but people don't remember it this way, is the story of the burning bush from Exodus 3. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to the bush, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. So the angel of the Lord is in fact God himself. Now why he is referred to as the angel of the Lord, I'm not quite sure. He has physical appearance. People can see him. And we're told that no one has ever seen God, but he appears as a man, as an angel of the Lord. We find a similar thing with the story of Gideon, where the Midianites have taken over Israel and oppressing them. And so the angel of the Lord came down and spoke to Gideon. The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. Gideon does it. Like, well, if the Lord is with us, then why is all this bad stuff happening to us? The Lord turned to him and said, suddenly there's a shift from the angel of the Lord to the Lord. The angel of the Lord is, in fact, the Lord himself. One of the ways that we know this, by the way, in the story of Gideon, in the next story I'll tell you about, is that in each case they offer a sacrifice. You cannot offer a sacrifice, a a right sacrifice to anyone but God. You cannot say to an angel, oh, your angel, you're, you're a, like a supernatural being, I will give a sacrifice to you. No, you can only worship God. And this is what happens with Gideon. Um, Please do not go away until I come back and bring my offering and set it before you. And the Lord said, I will wait till you return. Gideon went, prepared a young goat, and from an ephah of flour he made bread without yeast, putting the meat in a basket and its broth in a pot. He brought them out and offered them to him under the oak. The angel of God said, Take the meat and the unleavened bread, place them on this rock, and pour out the broth. And Gideon did so. With the tip of the staff that was in his hand, the angel of the Lord touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Fire flared from the rock, consuming the meat and the bread. And the angel of the Lord disappeared. When Gideon realized that it was the angel of the Lord, he exclaimed, Ah, sovereign Lord, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. But the Lord said, Peace, 
do not be afraid. There it is. You're not going to die. Another story, that's from the book of Judges, chapter 6. In chapter 13, we're told the story of how Samson came to be. That there was this couple, they lived in the northern part of Israel, the tribe of Dan, and the wife could not bear children. She was infertile. She was barren. And the angel of the Lord appeared to her and said, You are sterile and childless, but you are going to conceive and have a son. The angel of the Lord appeared to her. Um, and then he leaves. She goes to get her husband. It's like, you're not going to believe what happened. The angel of the Lord came to me, and he told me um, that I'm going to have a son. So Manoah, her husband, prayed to the Lord, O oh Lord, I beg you, let the man of God you sent to us come again to teach us how to bring up this boy who is to be born. God heard Manoah, and the angel of God came down again to the woman while she was out in the field. So she's like, okay, stay here. I'm going to get my husband. And the husband comes. And like Gideon, they offer a sacrifice. When the angel of the Lord did not show himself again, well, let me see. The angel of the Lord ascended in the flames, just as he did with Gideon. When he didn't show himself again, Manoah realized it was the angel of the Lord. We are doomed to die, he said to his wife. We have seen God. But his wife answered, if the Lord had meant to kill us, he would not have accepted a burnt offering and grain offering from our hands, nor shown us all the things or now told us this. God appeared to Hagar. That's stunning. It's not a small thing. She's not of the chosen line, like Melchizedek isn't. But God hears her and he appears to her. And so she says, she recognizes she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees me. She knows who he is. And now I have seen the one who sees me. She recognizes that she's had an encounter with God. He's the one who sees me. She goes back home, verses 15 and 16. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore him Ishmael. She goes back, and as the angel of the Lord told her, she gives birth to a son. And Abram gives the name Ishmael. Did she tell Abram about the encounter? Ishmael, which means God hears. What is striking about this passage is that Sarah is not part of this equation. She does not adopt him. She doesn't say, okay, now my line will continue through this. Yeah. Having come up with a solution, she now rejects the results of this solution. And then we are told Abram is 86 years old. You do the math, he was 75 when they went to Canaan. It's been 10 years. Hagar gets pregnant. So a year later, he's 86 years old. 
when I was growing up in Sunday school, we used to sing a chorus. Every promise in the book is mine. Every chapter, every verse, every line. All are blessings of his love divine. Every promise in the book is mine. You know, as wonderful as that may sound, it's simply not true. But it points out a problem that a lot of God's people have had over the years. That is, sometimes we imagine that God has promised something that he hasn't. And if you turn on the TV and watch any of uh, televangelists, oftentimes they make promises that God has never made. And some people have left the church, they have left the faith, because they're like, God promised me this, and he didn't deliver. When in fact, God did nothing of the sort. Abram's situation is quite different. God has promised him a number of things. And... um, One of those included that he would have a biological son. And it seems that God was not keeping his promise. After 10 years of waiting, he's tired of waiting. Sarah is tired of waiting. Um, She imagined that it was impossible for this to happen. And so they came up with a solution, as God's people have done over the centuries. We imagine that God has promised us something. It doesn't happen. So we go about getting it in our own way. Abram had a promise. Sarah had a solution to get the promise fulfilled. We may not have a promise. We may imagine that there is one, but there is none. And still we scheme, we plan, we devise a way to get what we imagine God has promised us. There are, in fact many promises in scripture that are made to the children of God. But let me suggest to you that they are not to be fulfilled in every Christian's life. We are the body of Christ. We are one body. We are one family. And so when the promise is fulfilled in the life of one believer, then in a sense it's fulfilled for all of us. There are promises, though, that are made to all of us. We are told, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's a promise to all of us. But we must tread carefully and imagine that somehow, oh, God has promised me a life without difficulties, a hassle-free life, no problems. Yeah, I don't remember seeing that in Scripture. I don't remember seeing that in scripture, and we must take care. And then, in the face of all of that, we must be patient. By the way, it's been a theme that has run through this service. From the prayer of confession, from Psalm 106, where we say we haven't waited, we've not been patient. To the hymn, Spirit of God, descend upon my heart, The line, teach me the patience of unanswered prayer. The quote for meditation before communion. And now the story of Abram and Sarai. The story that we see in chapter 16 is the story of testing of their patience. They trust God, but for how long? 
How long do I have to wait? We are to be patient. But again, some people imagine that God has promised something that he hasn't, and so they become quite impatient. That's not right. Okay. God has said he would never leave us, forsake us. He didn't say we will never have difficulties. We are to be patient. We are told in Galatians, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. And then James tells us at the beginning of his epistle, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Really? (laughs) Abram's had his share of trials, and he's to consider it pure joy. He's to be patient. Yes. Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must find its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And then, toward the end of his epistle, James continues, Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we consider blessed those who have persevered, those who have patience. We are to have patience because we put our trust in someone who is greater than ourselves. But we live in a world in which people do not believe in God, so there's no one greater than themselves. And so there's a real impatience. It's like, come on now. And as Christians, if we're not careful, we buy into the same impatience. And we imagine that God must answer us, give us what we think he's promised when he hasn't. And he must do it right now. Ten years, ten years, Abram's been waiting for God to keep his promise. I'm sure you know this, so it's not a spoiler alert. It's going to be another 14 years before Sarah has Isaac. Have to trust God. May God give us the grace to have this fruit of the Spirit, patience. Let's pray together. Our Father, there may be a part of us that um, sort of looks down at Abram and Sarai and sort of snicker at them and say, what were they thinking? when in fact we are often guilty of the same thing. Except we don't have the promise that they did. We imagine that we do. And when we don't get the answer we want, then we go about our own, using our own devices to somehow answer our prayer. We don't like trials. 
but it is the testing of our faith and it develops perseverance. We learn patience. Forgive us for our impatience. Forgive us for not trusting you, for not waiting on you, for not believing that you want what is best for us. I thank you for your great patience with us who fail time and time again. But as you were patient with Abram, may you be patient with us. As by your grace we grow in faith, in trusting you, in small things, in big things. To know that you are the creator of heaven and earth. You are the God who sees us. You have heard our prayers. And you love us. Thank you for bringing us together today to worship you. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.